the disappearance day of a great soul, a great spiritual teacher is always somewhat ironic because the, uh, the whole point of spiritual teaching is that we, we are eternal. We are actually all eternal souls and that um, we never die. And uh, so in that sense, the disappearance day, it's called disappearance because actually no one dies. No one actually dies and no one is really born. That Krishna teaches that in the Bhagavad Gita, Najayate Mriyate Va Kadachan, that the soul is never born and never dies. And someone who, who really understands that, someone who really understands that, of course, is qualified to be a spiritual teacher. There's a beautiful poem by Bhaktivinoda Thakur in which he says that he reasons ill. In other words, someone who says that a pure devotee dies actually is not being rational. He reasons ill. It's not a rational conclusion because uh, not only is Prabhupada present in his teachings, but, and, and this is the point I wanted to emphasize because we're doing three initiations today. And that is, um, it's really our duty, all of us, uh, to, to keep Prabhupada alive in this world. Prabhupada lives on, of course, he lives on as a soul. But even if we talk about his influence on this particular planet, Prabhupada lives on uh, by our faithful representation of him. So if you think about the word represent, which means represent, to present, okay, I'm going to get a little grammatical here. So uh, if you need to take a tranquilizer for this, now is, now is the time. Anyway, so... Of course, the verb present, to present something, uh, means to make it present. Obviously, those that word as a noun and as a verb have related meanings. So to represent, to represent means to make something present again. Something may be present in its own form, or someone can be represented. Someone can be again made present through another person. And so in that sense, literally, when we properly represent Prabhupada, Prabhupada is present through us. And this historical process by which uh, one generation keeps the previous generation alive and present, that process is called parampara in Sanskrit. Uh, parampara, parang means another, so parampara, it literally means like one after another in Sanskrit. That's kind of literally what it means, parampara, one after another. So um, we have a, a glorious tradition. I mean, you think about it, if, let's say, fortunately, it's not my case, but let's say my father was a killer who's in jail right now, or my 
I come from a long line of criminals or people who in some way disgraced themselves either politically or criminally or whatever, then, then it's, I, I don't like to talk about my family so much. If someone says, well, tell me about your family. Then I say, well, nice weather we've been having. So, but in our case, if someone has a glorious family, it's a great source of pride. And we have a, an extraordinary spiritual family. We have an extraordinary spiritual family. Uh, when we teach Krishna consciousness, we're not experimenting on people. We're not trying out some new theory to see like what happens to people spiritually or psychologically if they meditate like this or engage in that practice. And there's a lot of that going on. It's interesting because in the United States, for example, before the late um, 1800s, uh, the medical profession was not regulated. In other words, anyone that thought that I'm a doctor or I can cure people, they could just put a sign out, you know, so and doctor so and so, and perform surgery and prescribe medicine and do all kinds of things. And uh, that changed in the late 1800s, actually. And uh, the medical profession was recognized as a science and it became regulated so that in order to call oneself a doctor, a person had to get a certain amount of training. The person had to be tested on that training and follow certain protocols and procedures and, and so on and so forth. So of course it's interesting because from the historical point of view, because there's been so much fanatical and actually violent religion that the world, of course, at least in the Western world, has gone to the other extreme in any attempt to, let's say, to, to analytically say that this is, as to use our word, bona fide, or this is an authentic way to be spiritual and that is not an authentic way is considered to be uh, uncivilized. And of course, even in the Western world, uh, there are certain uh, so-called forms of religion that practically everyone does reject. So we do make certain judgments. For example, terrorism. The idea that in the name of religion, you kill an innocent person, uh, any civilized person rejects that. So, um, but still, if, if you compare spiritual traditions, let's say to medical traditions, we see that, let's say in the last 150 years, uh, medicine has been recognized as and required to be a science. For example, I remember I read an article several years ago that um, in, I suppose you'd call it new age circles, there's all these alternative medicines, some of which appear to do, do well. But if you go into a natural food store and you, for example, ask a salesperson there, uh, I have a cough, you know, do you have some herb for that? And so the person will take you to the aisle where there's all these natural medicines and say, I think you should take this and maybe take that. The fact is the person making that recommendation has probably been working there for about two weeks at most and probably in another two weeks won't be working there and has no formal training. So, 
so in in a sense krishna consciousness is an attempt to approach this whole topic of spirituality and if you want to use the word religion religion of course is a an ambiguous and problematic word but if you just if we talk about spirituality it the whole idea of krishna consciousness is to approach spirituality as a science in a completely rational way and uh Rational does not mean that you have no feelings. Rational is not the opposite of, let's say, emotions or feelings. For example, let's say someone is considering a relationship with another person. Uh, I would strongly suggest you be rational. In other words, we have our feelings, but if that person clearly, objectively, is going to be very bad for you, then you'd you know, better try to balance your feelings with uh, what you know reasonably to be true about the other person, about your personal needs, and about the very low probability of this relationship working. And on the other hand, if you meet someone about whom you have strong feelings and your intelligence tells you that this person is actually good for you, you are good for this person, both of you uh, seem to have proper character to sustain a long relationship, a long and happy relationship. And so um, to say that Krishna consciousness is rational is not to say that we have no feelings. It's simply to say that we, God gave us a heart and God gave us a brain and uh, we should not reject either of those. So in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna calls Krishna consciousness uh, buddhi yoga. It's the spiritual practice of, of reason, of being reasonable. And so uh, we claim that Krishna consciousness is a spiritual science. Now, the very idea of spiritual science uh, is problematic for some people, not intrinsically, not because of the nature of the claim not because of what those words mean and the nature of reality, but rather just because of the last several centuries of human history. And so we have to separate, uh, let's say, a particular claim being problematic because of its intrinsic contradictions or unreasonableness. That's not the same as a claim being culturally problematic because of human history. So the claim that there is such a thing as a spiritual science and we can, in a completely rational way, understand God and learn to love God is not philosophically or theologically problematic. It is culturally problematic among many people nowadays just because of human history. But in any case, um, having said all that, <laughs> and uh, I can't sit for too long or my doctor will be unhappy. So um, we have a great spiritual family. That's not simply our opinion. It's like, for example, let's say sports teams in America, they have these football teams. So a football team may be really bad and they always lose. 
but still they have their fans that, you know, go to the stadium, buy tickets and they cheer, even though they always lose. And so uh, recognizing Krishna consciousness is not simply cheering for your home team. It's not simply, well, I joined the Hare Krishna movement and I'm, you know, I don't think I'm going to leave it. So I'd better support it. It's, um, Krishna consciousness is, um, so we have a great spiritual family objectively by their character. I've studied world religions actually for many, many, many years, I think in an objective fair way. And, uh, for example, uh, well, anyway, I won't, I won't get into that critiquing other traditions, but on rational grounds, we have this great tradition and Prabhupada, Prabhupada, whose disappearance day is today, is a most worthy uh, member of that tradition. Prabhupada uh, preserved and adapted the tradition and expanded its influence in extraordinary ways and all that time, he demonstrated a really uh, impeccable personal character in the way he actually dealt with other people, in his personal habits. Prabhupada really was an acharya. He really did live a spiritual life. And that's something I personally verified. I'm skeptical by nature. Uh, actually, in the Bhagavatam, it said the first symptom of intelligence is doubt. So people that don't doubt anything are not really paying attention. In fact, if we didn't, if we were not skeptical to some extent, we wouldn't take up spiritual life. So a, there's a certain healthy amount of skepticism and doubt. I spent time with Prabhupada on many occasions and uh, his personal life was exactly in agreement with his teachings. There was no difference between his teachings and his personal life. And that's something I was able to, to use the term empirically verify. And we see Prabhupada's influence. We see how for the first time, really in known history, a, a great Acharya spread Krishna consciousness all over the world. So now our mission, so to speak, is to represent Prabhupada to keep Prabhupada present in a, in a powerful, active, dynamic way uh, by um, transmitting his teachings, which are, of course, not his teachings. Prabhupada didn't have any teachings. I should say that Tamal Krishna Goswami, great Vaishnava, he wrote his PhD thesis at Cambridge specifically on the topic of Prabhupada's original contributions. And so I, I want to mention that. Prabhupada's original contributions, as I'm sure uh, Tamal Krishna would agree, were not uh, in the sense of creating a new philosophy, but rather discovering or realizing and teaching very original very original and striking and relevant implications 
and uh, logical corollaries and necessary conclusions that come from our basic teachings. So just as Krishna is unlimited, the philosophy about Krishna is also unlimited. And uh, Prabhupada even said one time that if you uh, teach the Bhagavatam every day, in his language, he said, there will, he said, every day there will be new lights. That's, that's the expression Prabhupada used, new lights. And so, and so there are an infinite number of realizations and creative insights into our teaching. So we are, Prabhupada used to say, we don't repeat the philosophy just like parrots. And so it's, it's always this balance. Life is about balance. That's how you stay on your feet and don't fall on your face. And so there's a natural balance between faithfully preserving real spiritual knowledge and at the same time presenting that knowledge in a creative, relevant way. Uh, just like life today, human life today, in a sense, it's like human life always was. If you study human history, there are many universal aspects of human life in terms of our emotions, our beliefs, uh, our activities. There's a sense in which people are people. At the same time, different historical ages are different. And so there are certain ways in which the crazy world we live in today is, in a sense, it's, it, it's the way the world always was. And in other ways, the world today is completely different and unique. So it's, that, it's one and different. I mean, one and difference is not just the relationship between God and the soul. It's the nature of reality everywhere. And so our age is one with previous ages, and yet it's different in certain ways. And so a great acharya, like Prabhupada, preserves the universal truth of our philosophy and at the same time recognizes the unique features of the world we live in and finds unique, creative, you could say uh, unprecedented insights into our philosophy to present it in a way that no one's really presented it before. And that's the beauty of Krishna consciousness, just like we are all one as souls, but we are all unique and, and so on. So uh, our duty, our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to keep Prabhupada present in this world by representing him. And uh, those devotees who are being initiated today, we have, I didn't forget that. We have three devotees who are going to be initiated today. And um, that's really, well, th that's a very important aspect of initiation. And of course, on the one hand, a devotee is initiated because it is our first duty to save ourselves. A devotee once wrote a letter to Prabhupada saying, Prabhupada isn't our first duty to save the fallen souls. And Prabhupada wrote back, I remember because I was in the temple where the letter came and I read the letter myself. And Prabhupada wrote back and said, no, your first duty is to save yourself. It's just like in the airplane. They say if there's a sudden loss of cabin pressure or whatever, 
you know, first put on your own mask and then help other people. So if you die on the airplane, you're not going to be very helpful to your children or anyone else around you. So in the same way in Krishna consciousness, put on your own mask first. You have to save yourself first and then you can help other people put on their bhakti yoga mask. So they, <laughs> so they, they don't, they're not, uh, they're not destroyed by the conditions of Kali Yuga. So our first duty is to put on our own mask. Our second duty is to help other people put on their mask. So if, if we are strong in Krishna consciousness, then we, we have to help other people because everyone is family. Everyone is family. The, I mean, of course, uh, biologically or in terms of reproductive history, there are specific families. But from the spiritual point of view, we are all one family. We are all one family. All living beings, because as I've often said in the Bhagavad Gita three times, Krishna is twice Krishna refers to himself as a father, aham bija pradak pita, and pitahamasya jagato. I'm the father of this universe. And then Arjuna says, pitasi lokasya chara charasya. You are the father of all the world. And of course, there's also a mother. It'd be very disappointing if we, it was a one, if the universe was a one parent family. And so Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Pitaha Masya Jagato, I am the father of this universe, Mata and the mother, and the mother. So we know Radha Rani is there or the, and also, and, and who appears in the, in the form of uh, different goddesses also, like Lakshmi. I remember one time in the Miami Herald, which I think it's still the main newspaper in Miami, and I saw this article. I just happened to see this article when I was GBC of Miami, an experience which I survived. I remember I saw this article in the Miami Herald that um, they had just discovered some new Dead Sea Scroll in Israel, and they were kind of confused by it because it talked about God and his consort. So um, the Essenes, the Essenes, that uh, Jewish group that went to the, um, the Dead Sea, it's interesting because, as you know, Israel is a small country and there's not a lot of wilderness to go to. And so, uh, because most of the land is, is used either to produce food or for various things or for settlements. And so the Dead Sea, as uninviting as it may seem, as your primary residence, it was one of the few places in Israel, even in ancient times, that you could kind of go to the wilderness. And so in a sense, the ancient Jewish yogis, some of the ancient Jewish yogis went to the Dead Sea. If you read their writings, they, they really they really had ashrams. It, it was it was a very interesting community. But anyway, so they talk about God and His consort, and uh, so in the in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, it said that um, how does that verse go? That ekatmano. Uh, it's just that it's one compound word. Eka in Hebrew echad. It means one, 
There's Eka and Atma means soul, and Atmanao is a dual form. Sanskrit has singular, dual, and plural. So Atmanao means two souls. And so Eka, Atmanao literally means the two souls are one. So it's, uh, it's right in one of the first two or three verses of the Chaitanya Charitamrita. Theologically, you could, as I've often said, you could easily spend the rest of your life trying to understand that. But it's Ekatmano. Those two souls are one. So ultimately, there is a divine couple. And um, so Krishna consciousness, it, it, it's so positive. This world is actually uh, a, as, to use Prabhupada's words, perverted reflection, not very flattering, but that's what it is. So it's a perverted reflection of the spiritual world. I remember I, I, I mentioned that one time to a philosophy professor I had at UCLA. He said, well, that's, that's very neoplatonic. So it's interesting that this idea that, that this world is just a reflection of the spiritual world uh, is found throughout Western history also, Western philosophical history. It was a very popular idea. If you look at Plotinus, even Philo, actually, the, uh, the great Jewish philosopher in Alexandria, Philo, during the Greco-Roman times, also taught this. So it's an idea which has been around in Europe, and it's been around in Jewish philosophy for thousands of years. Um, so anyway, so the, the devotees who are going to be initiated now, uh, their first duty is to save their own spiritual necks, so to speak. You know, to, <laughs> to, be, to be strong in Krishna consciousness and, uh, and then to help others. You know, put on your own face mask and then help the person next to you. So Anyway, I congratulate them. It, it's a great thing when someone prepares themselves for initiation, when someone is able to overcome the widespread skepticism of this age and, and rationally believe. Uh, there's a certain kind of sort of foolish faith. It's just like there's a certain number of people in America, I hope it's not too many, who actually believe the recent election was unfair or there was cheating, and um, it's remarkable how some people are allergic to science. But so there, there, there's a type of stupid faith. There's a type of foolish faith where people simply come under the power of another person. It can be a guru, it can be a politician, it can be whatever. It can be in a, in a relationship where people remain in very bad relationships because psychologically they've come under the power of another person. So that's not Krishna consciousness. I mean, at least that, that's not what it's supposed to be. There's also intelligent faith, rational faith, where someone believes something or because they have every good reason to believe it. For example, I am quite convinced there's a real world outside of my mind. And I think I have very good reasons to believe that. In fact, I, I would even be so bold as to say, I know that. So if someone comes to a rational faith, if someone comes to accept something, to believe it, or, or beyond mere belief, to really know it, 
and they have every good reason for it. And they have not given up their, their ability to be critical. They've actually not given that up. They remain not critical in the sense of fault finding, but critical in the sense that when they're presented with some idea, uh, they can look at it objectively. Critical in the sense of retaining objectivity. So the real Krishna consciousness means you do not give up your objectivity. You do not give up your intellectual powers, but rather you come to re a reasonable conclusion about Krishna consciousness. And that conclusion is then being verified actually every day, every moment by your spiritual practice. So that's what initiation really is supposed to be. And um, so the three devotees who have qualified themselves for initiation, and also this is no small achievement, they have earned the trust and the confidence of other advanced devotees. They have worked with other devotees, they've earned the trust and the confidence of those devotees, which is something significant. So anyway, uh, are there any questions at this point on any of these topics? Hare Bol. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Uh, I do have a question for you. Thank you so much for the nectarian words. Um, I would ask to say, uh, maybe you can elaborate a little bit more why it is so important to uh, represent Prabhupada is our main mission, our main goal? Mm. Very good question. Um, because it's the best possible thing for the world. I mean, ultimately, as Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita, Jajada Charati Sheshtas. Sheshta in Sanskrit means the greatest or the best. And uh, won't go into all the comparative grammar here, but anyway, Shrestha means the best. And it's actually the superlative degree of Sri. Sri, like Sri means beautiful or glorious or, or good, like Sri Krishna. And so the superlative degree of Sri, like most Sri, is Shrestha. And so Krishna says, Jajat Acharati Shrestha, whatever the Shrestha, the best person or whatever the most important person does, that the common people follow. So Krishna uses the word where Krishna says, whatever that person does, the word is acharati, which of course, from that verb, we get the word acharya. In other words, whatever conduct that person shows. So, uh, and then, and then Krishna says, Sajat Pramanam Kurute, which is very interesting. Whatever evidence, whatever evidence uh, that person establishes, Lokas Tadanuvartate, the world follows that. What that means is it's just the reality of human psychology. Or you could say beyond human psychology, it's the reality of the way we exist as conscious beings that we follow, not blindly, and we may also lead, but if people did not naturally follow 
you could never have anything like cultural continuity. In other words, if you think of a world in which no one follows, it's simply chaos. It's absolute chaos, which would have a survival probability of roughly about zero. Because if never, I mean, I won't go into all the details. It's an interesting thought experiment to imagine a world in which people don't follow anyone else. I mean, you could, you could hardly feed yourself. You couldn't. Anyway, it's, it's easy to understand that. So, so we do have, you could say neurologically, and you could trace it back beyond our neurology, even to the soul itself, that we follow what is great. We follow what is beautiful. We follow what is reasonable, what is powerful. And, and otherwise, society would be impossible. So people will follow. People, some people, I mean, it's a, it amazes me how people say, well, this is my philosophy. And it turns out, well, there's only about maybe 1.3 billion other people that have your philosophy. And so there aren't that many philosophies. And there really aren't that many life options. We Just like if you eat carrots, you eat carrots in your own way. You may cook carrots in your own way. Carrots may taste to you in a way that's not exactly the way carrots taste to other people. But you eat carrots. And there are a lot of people on the earth that eat carrots. And so obviously, we have our own unique way of doing things. But what we do is uh, there are only a few options. And so... We will follow someone, even if I follow myself, even if I follow myself. But then it may <clears throat> turn out to be the famous case of a dog chasing his own tail. And so even if I say, I'm just going to follow my own ideas, but then you have to have enough. How should I put it? You have to be free enough from stupid vanity, from false ego to objectively evaluate yourself. It's, let's say, for example, I'm in Israel and I'm in Caesarea. If I'm in Israel, it's very likely I'm in Caesarea. And let's say for some reason, <laughs> and so let's say for some reason, I'm driving myself to Tel Aviv, which is virtually impossible because Taruni would never let me do that. But let's say, for example, I was, <laughs> let's say, for example, I was in Caesarea and I was driving myself to Tel Aviv and I thought that, well, I, I think I know how to get there. I think I know which road to take. So the question is, do I really know? Do I really know? And of course the answer is I probably would end up somewhere else and not Tel Aviv. So, um. So if someone is lost in their own vanity, in their own ego, they are incapable of objectively evaluating their own ability of their own, or their own knowledge. And therefore, people may follow their own instincts or their own ideas, in some cases, correctly. For example, when I decided to join the Hare Krishna movement, I had a lot of friends who told me not to do it. And they had different motives, none of them really rational. So um, in that sense, I decided to follow. But even then, I was following Prabhupada. So in any given situation, we have to follow the most knowledgeable person. 
And in most situations, we are not the most knowledgeable. If I need to get, let's say, my eyes examined, uh, then I'm not the most, I can't examine my own eyes. I mean, there, there are just thousands of situations in which I am not qualified to follow myself or, or, I, or I'm not qualified to be followed by myself. And so uh, as it turns out, oh, there's Gunavatar, got his camera fixed. Yes. And Varshavanavi, nice to see you. Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastri Koi. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, um, who am I going to follow? And so by, by objective analysis, by reasonable analysis, the best person to follow is Prabhupada. And I think I can defend that rationally. And so therefore, if we don't follow Prabhupada, we're following something or someone that is less than Prabhupada. And if we follow something or someone that is less than Prabhupada, it is not as good for us and not as good for the world. And so to me, and this is why, you know, I'm actually in the Hare Krishna movement, which I can't say it surprises me on some days, but I mean, the fact that I'm in the Hare Krishna, <laughs> what? So that even for example, not, not only following Prabhupada, but even, you know, being a, a member of ISKCON. Why am I a member of ISKCON? Uh, for two, basically for two reasons. Uh, number one, I won't make any more jokes about that, but basically for two reasons. One is that I've studied history, the history of religion for many, many years, and I know that it is better for the world that there be an international society for Krishna consciousness. And I mean, any human institution will always have a lot of silly things. And religious institutions sometimes seem to be even more efficient at accumulating silly things. But still, um, it's better for the world. It's actually better for the world to have a united Krishna conscious movement under Prabhupada. Because Prabhupada created ISKCON and with all his wisdom and purity, inevitably, because there are actually humans in ISKCON, there are certain things that we may not like, but you know that's life. It's just like if you live in Israel or if you live in America, I mean, we've had to suffer for the last four years anyway. So whatever country you live in, um, there are imperfections. You know, there are politicians, politicians, we know what politicians are like, and yet it's better than anarchy. We would not have a better life and other people would not have a better life if we just chose anarchy or if we chose to reject the rule of law and order. So the world is better with Prabhupada, United ISKCON, which is Prabhupada's mission. And even if some leader, some person thinks that this temple is my temple, or this is my zone. Actually, ISKCON is Prabhupada's movement. It's actually Prabhupada's movement. So, and the second thing is just personal loyalty. 
uh, personal loyalty. My debt to Prabhupada is so great that it would be absurd for me not to be faithful to him. How could I ever respect myself if I was not faithful to the person who saved me? So, um, so for all those reasons, uh, it's much better to follow Prabhupada than not to follow him. So I'm here. <laughs> that's uh, that's the answer. Uh, any other question? Oops. Can you still hear me? It's, I got a little message saying my internet connection was, you can hear me all right. So uh, any other any other questions? Taruni, do we have any other questions? There's one question uh, on the chat. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, about the guru taking on the, um, the uh, disciples' karma. Is that it? Yeah, someone asked it. Yes, I'm not aware of that idea appearing in any Shastra. I'm not aware. So I personally am not eager to have anyone's karma. Like if I initiate someone that, let's say, killed somebody, I don't want to have, you know, have to be killed in my next life or in this life because I initiated that person. So, so this is what this is what the shastras actually teach about this. There's a verse, beautiful verse in the Brahma Sanghita. Of course, they're all beautiful verses. But that uh, just Twindra Gopa Matavendra Ahosha Karma Bandhanu Rupa Falabhajanam Atanoti. Karmani near the Hati Kintuch of Hokti Bhajang, Govindamadi Purushantamahang Bhajami. If you know Sanskrit, uh, this is an incredibly beautiful verse. It's just the, the, the poetic composition is amazing. So, anyway, I'll translate it into less poetic English. So, the idea here is whether you are Indra or Indra Gopa. This is an obvious play on words. Yeah, Indra is the lord of the material heaven, uh, the the uh, rule, the leader of the devas, and so on. And Indra Gopam is just like a little insect. So it's like saying whether you are the king of heaven or an insect, and everybody you know is somewhere in between there. So just Twindra Gopamatavendra Mahosa Karma Bandhanu Rupa Falavajanamatanoti that Krishna literally sort of imposes on everyone or extends to them the acceptance. Everyone is required to accept the result of their own karma, of their own karma. But karmani near the hati kintu, kintu means however, um, Krishna literally burns up near dahati. Dahati means burns and near Dahati literally means burns up. Krishna burns up all of the karma of those who are of Bhakti Bhajam, of those who have 
uh, accepted, who have accepted devotion to Krishna. So for those who are devoted to Krishna, so Krishna actually burns up all of our karma. And in that sense, you can say that um, the transactions that the transaction be, or the relationship between a soul and Krishna goes through the spiritual master. Although I, I don't want to overemphasize that. In other words, if you have a bona fide guru, then you have your own personal relationship with Krishna. I wanted to make that clear. But in terms of this whole karma problem, <laughs> the fact that we take to Krishna consciousness and we have karma, it is Krishna. It is Krishna who, who burns up the karma. So who gets the karma? Nobody. Nobody gets the karma. It's burned up. It's trash. And, you know, the trash is burned. So now if the guru, if a guru has a disciple, so you could say Krishna is dealing with the disciple through the guru. So if the guru is not completely pure and is a type of semiconductor, then... I mean, it's the way I understand it is uh, that I do not have anyone else's karma. I don't even have my own karma. Because when you take to Krishna consciousness, Krishna burns up your karma. So really, there's the karma's burned up. There's no karma to go around. And so if we said, if we said that the guru accepts the karma, what does that mean when the Shastra says that Krishna burns up the karma. I would say that to the extent that, I'm just trying to sort of reason about this, if the guru has some material motive, then of course he may be entangled in the, with the disciple, especially if he gives the disciple bad business advice and the disciple sues him, which actually has happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, so if, if, if we think in human terms of, just relationships. I mean, how people can get entangled with each other. But, but if the guru is doing his or her job properly and is really just acting for Krishna, then Krishna burns up the karma. So, any other questions? Yes, Maharaj, can I ask a question? Of course. What is the relation between how do you expect in terms of uh, the disciples to uh, refer to shiksha uh, instructions and diksha? Guru. Diksha guru. Shiksha guru and diksha guru? Yes. I, I mean, disciples, usually the disciples, they're supposed to be fully surrendered to uh, diksha guru, but they, in, the, in the reality, they find themselves under the instructions of shiksha guru. So how do yeah, that's normal. Yeah, I mean that's that's been happening for millions of years. That's nothing unusual. And uh, so the general principle is that one has to follow the greatest spiritual inspiration, but there's an etiquette. We have a protocol or an etiquette, so. If we follow the etiquette, if we are respectful and, you know, act like mensches, then uh, 
then there's no problem. For example, I have disciples who are somewhat, how should I put it? <laughs> a little unhappy with the fact that I try to present Krishna consciousness in appropriate ways in the Western world. You know, because that's life. In, in the old days, you know, I initiate a lot of people. And then at a certain point in my life, I, um, I, uh, I understood. I think I grew up. I became more mature, inevitably, spiritually, and materially. And I saw that there were much better ways to present Krishna consciousness. And of course, I would say Tamal Krishna was about, you know, I don't know how many years, at least 10 or 15 years ahead of me. But so, um, and then some people inevitably, I mean, if you get any human community, you're going to get a certain statistical distribution of psychological types. It's just like if you look at, let's say, a thousand Hare Krishnas or Christians or Jews or, or, or people in terms of their political views or lawyers or doctors, you're going to get a certain percentage of fanatics. Fanaticism is just a neurological type. And some people are just fanatical, whatever they're doing. And some people are reasonable. Some people are conservative. Some people are, are less conservative. And so inevitably, I have some disciples who, you know, fell deeply in love with their dotis or or saris and you know just and are more comfortable with a very conservative guru and that's fine you know that's fine it's it's if everyone's happy as they say in italy contento tu contenti tutti which means that you know if you're happy everybody's happy so Really, if everybody's happy in Krishna consciousness, there's no problem. So we should be respectful to everyone. And, and of course, not all devotees are, but we, if, if we follow the proper etiquette, if we're respectful, then we have a right. We have a God-given right to pursue, follow our, our inspiration in Krishna consciousness. So as far as what does a person do if they have a Diksha Guru, but they're really more inspired by another person, they should do what devotees have been doing for forever. And that is be respectful to everyone, but follow uh, a, a style of Krishna consciousness that, that works for you. And try to be reasonable. Some people in the name of that are unreasonable, but try to be reasonable. So did that address your question? How do you expect the, the Shiksha Guru to support uh, the Diksha Guru in terms of the disciples? By requiring the Shiksha disciple to be a lady or gentleman. In other words, if we just behave properly and we treat other people with respect, <clears throat> then there shouldn't be a problem. And the guru should never think like this soul belongs to me. Souls don't belong to other souls. We all belong to Krishna. And so I have my service as a guru. It's just a service. And I don't think that my disciples are my property. 
I think their money is my property, but but not them. That was a joke. That was a joke. So, <laughs> so I, I don't think that my, I mean, my disciples, I see them as, as eternal souls. They belong to Krishna and I, I'm just trying to help them. And so if a disciple says to me that I, I listened to this guru that inspired me very much and I accepted this person as a shiksha guru, I just say mazel tov. You know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, if you're happy, if I, see, if I see a disciple is deviating, let's say they accept someone who I know is actually not following Prabhupada strictly, then I may try to reason with them. But if they don't listen to me, then that's their problem, not my problem. But I have disciples who respectfully, you know, took my permission and learn from other gurus. And I have, and there are disciples of other gurus who respectfully took, you know, their guru's blessings are listening to me. We are one spiritual family and uh, devotees, I mean, of all people, devotees should not be possessive about other souls. And that's why the, the proper manners, just being a lady or a gentleman following proper etiquette it makes everything work peacefully. Is that uh, address your question? <laughs> hey, Krishna. So, uh, any other question? Yes. What is the what is the qualifications that the disciples need to be initiated by Guru? That's Venu. When I was in Israel, she was she's always helping me. So the qualification is uh, that you have to keep your vow. It's interesting. We, I've, I've explained this many times. The word devotee. It's, of course, in the Latin, devoto. And devoto just means one who follows a vow. So we promise. And, of course, I know that, you know, this world is, um, it's a difficult world, difficult age. But basically, the duty of the disciple is to faithfully do what the disciple promised. And try to serve. I, I would add that. It's not part of the formal initiation vow, but um, you know, every mother or father wants to see their child grow up and do something useful in the world. And, and, and so in the same way, uh, we're trying to help Prabhupada. So I would, I'd certainly, it makes me happy to see my disciples being useful to Prabhupada. And because we shouldn't live a selfish life. Basically, Kanishta Adhikari, third-class devotee, is selfish. Just selfish. It's um, like, you know, it, it's, I just do my puja, I do my worship, and then I'm going to be saved. And uh, the world, you know, that's not my problem. So when you realize that if you, if you, if you have good parents and you love your parents, 
and your parents are very worried about something, then it also becomes, if you're an adult and not just a little child, then the family problems also are your problems. And so we have a family problem, which is that so many souls have forgotten Krishna. It's a family problem. And so if we are serious about Krishna consciousness, then we want to help Prabhupada and Krishna to bring these lost children back to Krishna. So I would say, you know, just uh, disciples should follow the vows and, and do their best to help other people in Krishna consciousness. So, uh, is that a, let's see. The dog. Oh, someone asked, why do we celebrate Acharya's Vaishnav's disappearance days in our tradition? That's an interesting question. Um, Because I think that, that it, it's a time of honoring their life. Of course, we celebrate birthdays too, appearance days. But when someone left this world, uh, it seems very wrong to just let that day go by without remembering it, without honoring a person. Because it's interesting, the day that Prabhupada left this world is the day that... Krishna proved to the world, in a sense, that Prabhupada was a pure devotee because he lived a sinless life. And so it's a great event. It's a very important event. When, when, when a, a great devotee leaves this world, it's the time when all of the disciples are tested. Simple question. What percentage of Prabhupada's disciples are still actively engaged in his mission? In whatever way, you know, it doesn't matter householder, sannyasi, I mean, that's just, that doesn't, you know, it's just a detail. But what percentage of Prabhupada's disciples are still some way or other actively engaged in trying to help him? It's actually not at all a majority. And so in a sense, when, when a pure devotee leaves this world, it's the test of the disciple because um, Prabhupada always said, Vani and Vapu, that anyway, if you study the sociology of religion and one of the main uh, phenomena in the sociology of religion is the role of the charismatic leader, that when some charismatic leader is present, like a Prabhupada or, a, you know, or Buddha or Jesus or whatever, uh, then... Um, then people are drawn to that. And it's kind of, I mean, in a sense, it's nice. In a sense, it's not nice that I've watched so many Vyas Puja festivals for Prabhupada. And when his disciples are speaking, even up to, I mean, till today, it's very common. They'll just tell anecdotes. Even though Prabhupada said Vani is more important than Vapu, in other words, the message is more important than just some kind of attachment to the external form, which is not really the guru. We are all eternal souls. That 
sometimes you'll hear it'll go on for an hour and everyone will speak and it's just one anecdote after the other. At one time Prabhupada smiled at me and one time he, you know, did this and or that and 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 not even remembering that Prabhupada really came to this world to save it. He started a mission. It's not going that well in the Western world and that we, that we urgently need to fix that for Prabhupada. And no one will say a word about that. So when the spiritual master leaves this world, then it's a test of, do we really understand what a guru is? A guru is not a physical body. I mean, no one is a physical body and certainly not a guru. And so can we see the guru through the message? Do we understand the guru as a great soul who who brought this message? And do we remain actively engaged in trying to help other people in Krishna consciousness? So in a sense, it's when the guru physically leaves that the real guru is tested because a, a, a pure guru becomes more glorious after his physical disappearance. The real disciples manifest. So in a sense, all kinds of spiritual truths manifest the truth of who's who among the disciples, the truth of who's who among the gurus. In a sense, that manifests upon the guru's departure. And so, I mean, there are many, many good reasons why we have to honor the disappearance day of a guru. And not only for all those sort of pragmatic, revelatory aspects of it, but also because great people should be honored. And by great people, I mean not great soccer players or politicians, but people that actually make a major contribution to the world. And by honoring their birth and their disappearance, we are emphasizing their importance within human culture and preserving that importance so that people actually follow them. So, um, any other questions? If not, I will proceed to the uh, the initiations. Yes, please. <laughs> Krishna. So, uh, okay, we'll do ladies first. So, Natasha. <laughs> oh, Natasha. Such a good soul, Natasha. Anyway, um, and her children are there. What are their names? And hey, thanks for watching. Hello. Hi. <laughs> so, um, so I ask you a question. That's a different question. <laughs> Why is this day different? Taruni, how do you say it in Hebrew? Why is this day different than all other days? <laughs> yes. So why is this day different than all? So the disciple uh, makes a vow 
So uh, what is your vow? So to chant at least 16 rounds of um, the Maha Mantra and the Japa beats um, and no meat, no, um, no intoxication, no gambling and no illicit sex. That's the four rules. Yeah, I'm happy to take my vows today. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was thinking of what name Krishna wanted for Natasha, and Natasha is actually already almost a spiritual name, and, and, and I'll explain that. Because in Sanskrit, the word nata, a T with a dot, <coughs> with a dot under it, it can mean an actor or a dancer. Mm. And um, Krishna is the supreme actor because he comes to this world and plays like a human being. And he, he brings his, uh, his community with him. The, uh, the residents of Vrindavan and Krishna creates all this wonderful drama to attract us. Therefore, there can be a 10th canto of the Bhagavatam because Krishna performs these amazing activities, which I hope to present in a way that will uh, attract many people. And so that's Nutta and also dancer. Krishna dances with the gopis. And also sometimes he dances with, you could say less attractive partners, like when he danced on the head of Kaliya. And uh, so Krishna is also the supreme dancer. So therefore Krishna as the, the Lord of, of this uh, drama and dancing is Natasha. So that's the name I chose for Natasha. <laughs> Natasha Davy Dussy. And so um, no refunds. So I will actually, I'll write that for you in the, in the chat. Let's see. Natasha. And it's, um, I'll separate it for you. Nata is the uh, first word and then uh, Isha you know means the Lord and of course uh, Davy Dossi Aribal Davy Dossi Ki Thank you so much, Natalia. Thank you, Natasha. I almost said Natasha. Natasha, yeah, she's helping me very much with my books. So, thank you. Next, uh, Bar. Hare Krishna. Oh, there you are. Hare Krishna. So, uh, your vow. So uh, I vow to chant 16 rounds, minimum of 16 rounds every day, the Mahamanta Krishna. Uh, I vow to follow the, follow the four principles, regulative principles. Uh, four. <laughs> Two. To not have illicit sex, to not eat meat, fish, or eggs, to not gamble, and, and uh, to not 
take intoxication. Very good. It's very good. So uh, you also have a similar name. Your name that I chose, Krishna chose, is Bharata. Bharata is Arjuna. It means a member, uh, a member of the greatest dynasty. The Pandavas appeared in that dynasty. And in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna often calls Arjuna Varata. And it can, re- it can refer to actually any of the Pandavas and, and other great souls. So I'll, uh, I'll send that to you in chat. Bharata Das. And uh, in Sanskrit, actually, Bharata, because of this great dynasty, Bharata is also the name of India. If you look at Indian postage stamps, <laughs> Uh, it in it has in Devanagri it says Bharata. So Hare Krishna Bharata Das. Hare Krishna. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. And last but not least, a show. Hare Krishna, Charya Uh Where is the show? We on the same. Literally, I have to see if we're on the same page of this mm-hmm. Zoom. Uh, oh, there you are. Hare Krishna. <laughs> so, nice to see you again. Thank you, Charlie. So, uh, your vow. I vow to chant uh, 16 attentive rounds of the Maha Mantra every day. And I vow to refrain from uh, intoxicants this is sex, meat eating, and gambling. Very good. Hi, Krishna. So your name will be Ishwara Das. Ishwara means the Lord. So mm-hmm. I will send that to you. Let's see. Easy to pronounce, isn't it? I don't usually give like very long names that are hard to pronounce. So, very very good. So, uh, do do any of the three initiates have any questions about your name? No, so thank you. Yeah, Israel is um, is such a special country. So many, so many good devotees come from that country, and uh, I hope I'll be there before too long. As we know, there's there's a that medical problem right now, the pandemic. But um, once that's over, I, I hope I'll be with you again. We hope so much. We hope so much, Maharaj. I'll be going to that place which is right next to Orakiva. I have an old joke with Taruni about that. <laughs> so, anything else? So, so uh, Gunavatar, is there anything else? We are, we are very happy and satisfied. For you share in this way, you share your, your blessings to, to Israel. You empower these two, three devotees, these three devotees to, 
to help us spread Krishna consciousness in Israel. So we are so obliged to you. Oh, it's really my pleasure. I'm actually very grateful to Krishna 